Am I on? There we go. Okay, great, great, great. You all heard that Second Samuel thing, right? Okay, good. Um, as we begin this morning our study of the book of Second Samuel, uh, it opens with the account of the narrative of a man who isn't a, it does, isn't a, isn't what he seems to be. Speaking about another man who isn't what he seemed to be in the reaction of David is really not what we would expect, and as we're going to find out, and that's because David is much more than he seems. Now, before we jump into that, uh, let me, by way of introduction, kind of give you an immediate context of 2 Samuel 1, because while for us it's been eight years since we studied the events of 1 Samuel, for them in the story it's only been about two or three days. So I want to get you back up to speed as to how uh, 2 Samuel begins. Now, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. Um, actually, to be more accurate, it was just one scroll that was later divided in history. And the reasons for its division probably are, are multiple, but I think one of the reasons is that scroll probably was pretty heavy, you know, lugging that around the synagogue. So they probably divided Samuel into 1 and 2 Samuel. Because of that division, there's some discussion about, some people think that actually 2 Samuel 1 should belong to the end of 1 Samuel because it, it kind of wraps up the very clear narrative arc that we see in 1 Samuel, and that is the rise and fall of King Saul and the handing over of the kingdom to David. In fact, there are some that suggest that 2 Samuel actually shouldn't begin and that's because the theme of 2 Samuel is the reign of David. And because of that, that's such a clear theme that it really actually shouldn't begin until 2 Samuel chapter 5 and precisely at verse 6 because it's at that point that all of the nation of Israel recognizes David as uncontested king. And up until that, you don't really see that dynamic. So in other words, whether or, whether or not you want to split Samuel in your mind right where it does or put 1 Samuel 2 with or 2 Samuel 2 with 1 Samuel or go all the way up to chapter 5, it doesn't matter. What we're going to see, however, in the next five weeks is a civil war taking place between the people of God until David can unify them all under his reign. Uh, there's some hints in the text that tell us about that. For example, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. A few verses after that. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now the reason there is a civil war is because Saul dies. And without a clear heir apparent or a successor, and the monarch passes away, there's a power vacuum, a struggle. And that creates a civil war. Now, Saul dies because, as you recall, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies in a battle against the Philistines. So I told you to go to 2 Samuel, but I want you to turn a couple pages to the left to give you the context. So here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Okay, so this is the battle. This is the war, the impending doom, so to speak that Saul feared, which caused him to go see the witch of Endor later in chapter 28. Originally, believe it or not, David and all his men, remember David had collected just this, this motley crew of men to follow him along with their women and their children and all this stuff, a couple, about 600 of them, they were originally going to have to go up and fight against Saul and their fellow countrymen, the Israelites. Because for the last 16 months of their lives, they've been taking refuge with Israel's enemy, the Philistines. 
And so they had to march up against their own countrymen. So go to 1 Samuel chapter 27, uh, look at verses 1 and 2. So this is David, he's, he's still running from Saul, and he says, verse 1 of 1 Samuel 27, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Is there nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines? Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. And I shall escape out of his hand. Verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Malch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household. Now go down to verse 7. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And so David and his men, they're living with the Philistines, and now the Philistines are going to have to go up to war against Saul and, and Israel, and Saul is freaking out. He goes to the witch of Endor in chapter 28, and, and David, now imagine the conundrum. Now me and my men, we have to fight against our own brothers against Israel. Yet the hand of providence shows up, and in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel, you realize, and it makes sense, the Philistines, as they're mustering their armed forces, and they see hundreds of Hebrews, and they say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, who brought these Hebrews here? We're not going to have them go fight with us, because in the heat of battle, they're going to turn on us. And so they send David and his men away. First Samuel chapter 29, verse 3. So uh, verses 1 and 2 is describing all their armies are gathering and marching before the leaders. Verse 3, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us." Imagine David breathing a sigh of relief. He and his men do not have to fight against their own countrymen. They get sent back while the Philistine armies march off to fight against Saul. We see that in 1 Samuel 29, verse 11. So David sent out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. However, right, it's never, things never go quite smoothly in David's time. On their way back, 1 Samuel chapter 30 records for us that while David and his men were mustering with the Philistine armies, the Amalekites had come in and raided their land in Ziklag and took all of their property and took their wives and children as kidnapped and, and took off with them. And so in 1 Samuel 30, David and his men rally and pursue the Amalekites and get back their wives and children and all of their property while the Philistines and Saul and Israel are fighting. Now this then is the immediate background for 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Saul dies in the battle against the Philistines. We'll see that recorded in 1 Samuel 31. And David is returning home from striking down the Amalekites who had raided against him and his men while they were mustering with the Philistine armies. All right, so let me read 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, before we jump into this, let me just kind of orient you to what's happening. If you are not familiar with your Bible, like you're not familiar with the story of David, maybe you're not even a Christian and a friend has brought you here this morning, I just want to let you know, the first half, verses 1 through 16 of this 
chapter will probably be a shock to you because David's response is not what you would expect. If, on the other hand, you are familiar with your Bible, the shock for you will come in the second half of this chapter, verses 17 to 27, for the same reason, because David's response is not what you would expect. Let's take a look at it one at a time. Back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, we'll pick it up at verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he had come to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Okay, stop. Key in reading the Bible. Don't read the Old Testament like you read the New Testament. This is not an epistle. This is not a letter. This is a story. And if you want the scriptures to, to come alive and make sense of it, you've got to realize this is a story. We can easily just read past that. But can you imagine the gut punch this news is to David and all the men standing around who hears this? The symbols of their national strength and pride, their king and the heir apparent, dead. The heroes of their movement crushed. Only one other time in Israel's young history did such tragic news overtake them. It was back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, nearly 90 years earlier, when the armies of Israel were again facing the Philistines, and the Israelites were again defeated by the Philistines, and the Ark of God was captured. Listen to how similar that report sounds to the report we just read here. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 16. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. I mean, the parallels are way too coincidental. The narrator, the author, is trying to show us a theme. Now, even in the midst of these national tragedies, God was working something good. Hard to believe, certainly for, for the original readers, hard to believe any good could come from this. But we have the advantage of hindsight. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the defeat marked the end of a corrupt priestly house. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, the defeat marks the end of a compromised royal house. The, the fall of the house of Eli paved the way for the rise of Samuel the priest. And now the, the fall of the house of Saul paves the way for the rise of David the king. Let's look at back to the text. Pick it up in verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. Verse 10, So I stood beside him. And killed him. 
because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Now, pause here. If any of you are read like good John Grisham or good like historical fiction, war kind of stuff, you, you probably picked up on why I'm pausing. The narrator put something in here to let us know something doesn't jive with this young Amalekite's account. Did you pick up on it? We see it here as, as he says, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, he says. Really? By chance, you happen to be in the heat of the battle, waging war right next to the king. That just coincidentally, you found yourself there. That's like saying, you know, by chance, I was strolling on the beaches of Normandy, and lo and behold, the Germans and the Allies. I don't know what's going on. You don't casually, no one casually strolls into a battlefield. Something doesn't jive with this man's account. More than likely, this Amalekite was scavenging the bodies for loot, and he came across Saul's body before the Philistines did. Now, to be clear, let's get back into the text. David does not know that this Amalekite is lying to him, right? We simply know because the narrator is giving us literary clues that are tipping us off, and... We know exactly how Saul died, and this isn't it. Go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31, and look at verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. That is to say, they could target him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. Notice three times that the author is talking about Saul being dead. He's dead. This is it. It's over. This is not the story the Amalekite is sharing with us in 2 Samuel chapter 1. What is going on here? The Amalekite, more than likely, scavenging the bodies, comes across Saul, sees, knows who Saul is, takes the crown, takes the armband, and rather than try to hawk it, he thinks, I can ingratiate myself with the would-be king. And I come with a story how I... I eliminated the king's adversary, and I brought to the king the royal regula, so now that now David can become the king of all Israel. And no doubt, this Amalekite was hoping for favor, a reward of some kind, right? Prestige, rank, riches, maybe, maybe marriage into the would-be king's house. Who knows? But this is payday for this guy, and he comes ready with the ruse. Did you notice his description? He, his clothes are torn. He, he's got dirt on his forehead. Could mean one of two things, that he's, he's pretending like he just came from the battle himself and was fighting in it, or he's in mourning and grief, whatever it could be. We're not sure. But imagine with me what this man is thinking. I know. I'm going to tell David, I'm the man who took out your greatest enemy. The obstacle to your throne, I removed it for you. Oh, the gods are favoring me. And remember, he's not a Jew, he's an Amalekite, so he's worshiping the other gods. But he's like, hey, the gods have given me favor, and now I can ingratiate myself with this king. This is going to be awesome. 
but I know these Jews. There's these religious types, so I got to come off a little bit pious. So I don't want to seem like I just killed them for vain glory. I'm going to say I killed them out of compassion. Notice verse 10. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. So here you go, David. I am handing you the crown. But what happens? What happens? Can you imagine the scene? Here he comes. King David. And he's like thinking reward. Here's the crown. Here's the armlet. And he's thinking, this is going to be awesome. And what happens? David rips his shirt. And he falls to his knees. And he starts to mourn and weep. And then all the men in the court, they tear their robes. And they mourn. Notice the verse 11. The writers, the author's putting on the verbs. They mourn. They weep. They're fasting. Now, because he has that comment about fasting, we know there must be a break in the narrative because you can't say, I'm fasting. When are you fasting? Right now, and I'm done, right? It takes some hours to fast. So probably what happens is guy shows up, does his presentation, and they do something he does not expect. Rather than rejoicing over what's happening, they tear their robes. And they leave the Amalekite. They're mourning. And they leave this poor guy maybe in the court by himself. He's like, what the heck is going on here? They're, All right. Can you imagine how long those few hours were for this guy? That was not the response he was expecting from the king. Notice the pivot point in the plot. It comes in verse 14. David comes by later. And David said to him, how is it? You were not afraid. To put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. You know if you're the Amalekite, you are in trouble. If the king, or excuse me, David, is still calling Saul the Lord's anointed. Listen to the words that, I mean, David says, why were you not afraid? Notice how the narrator said the armor bearer was afraid. Why were you not afraid, Amalekite, to put out your hand and destroy the king, the Lord's anointed? And in that moment, David calls another one of his young men and says, execute the Amalekite. And right then and there, he is, I don't know if his head got lopped off or whatever it was, he is dead. And David makes it clear in verse 16 that his death is on his own hands. His blood is on his hands because as he said, he admitted to killing the Lord's anointed, something that David himself wouldn't even do. Now, as I said earlier, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this can seem extreme. I mean, even shocking that that this king would have this young man killed. And the real irony is, as we as readers know, he didn't even kill King Saul. The Amalekite lied and died. But now remember, David, David does not have the knowledge we do as the reader. He believes the Amalekite story. That this Amalekite took the life of another man that was not his right to do so. And he must be executed for it as justice would demand. And it is swift and it is final. I mean, we're just not used to seeing this kind of definitive, immediate justice. And it's almost shocking to witness and read. 
And if you have to be like politically conservative, you're like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Justice, swift and final. You do that and you won't have crime or immorality. Bring the hammer down, David. I like this guy. All right. Now, before you do your David for president kind of bumper sticker here, his response is twofold, right? So there are two parts to this, that chapter. On the one hand, there's justice. He executes the Amalekite for his evil action. We see that in verse 1 through 16. But then there's this compassion, a grief over Saul for his greatness in verses 17 to 27, the second half of the chapter. And again, remember, if you are familiar with your Bibles, you're shocked that David would write this lament in verses 17 to 27. Now, if you've read that and you just weren't like jaw hitting the floor, it's because you've read your Bible too much without getting into it. Right? Maybe you just checked off your Bible reading plan without actually reading the, the drama of redemption being unfolded here that David would write this. It's shocking and unexpected that David would write what he says about Saul in these 10 verses. I won't read all 10 verses, but I'll kind of highlight them to give you the level of shock. And I'm not saying the people I'm going to reference now are anything like the biblical characters. Don't freak out. Could you imagine if Nancy Pelosi died and Donald Trump said this about her? That's the frame. Now listen to what he says. Oh, Israel, your glory is slain on the high places. How the mighty have fallen. He says they're beautiful and lovely. So, so here it is. Three times David says, Saul... You're mighty. Verse uh, 21, right? The shield of the mighty, which was Saul's, was defiled. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. And as I read, verse 19, David calls Saul the glory of Israel. In verse 21, David actually curses Mount Gilboa itself. For, as if it was its fault for letting Saul and Jonathan die there. He curses the mountain. Verse 23, David says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Now, for us kind of suburbanite folk, that, I mean, you, we don't see eagles, right? Maybe, maybe you go to the zoo, you might see a lion, but they're usually sleeping in the corner, you know, like, big deal. But if you've ever seen an eagle in flight, you've ever seen a lion in, in its elements, the majesty, the awe. And David says, that's what you were, Saul. That's what you were, Jonathan. And in verse 24, oh, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in luxuriously, he clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. As I said, if, if you're familiar with your Bible, this is not what you're expecting. If you're reading the Bible, like I said, to, to get into the story, because you read it and you say, David, are, are we talking about the same Saul here? The same Saul who no less than 16 times tried to kill you in the last book. Do you remember that? The Saul that brought you into his house, he betrayed you, pursued you, hunted you, and cheated you. Do is, is, You know, I don't know who you're lamenting in these 10 verses, but it's not the Saul I know. It's actually pretty shocking that David would respond this way. I don't think any of us would. Let me make 
two quick passing observations about this unexpected lament in verses 17 to 27, and then turn our attention to the actual real focus of this chapter. But it's important to do this legwork to understand what this chapter, what role it plays. First, number one, this is just another reminder to me, this lament, of how radically different you and I are from God. When those who oppose us and those who hurt us, those who come against us, when, when difficulty or some evil besets their life or some tragedy befalls them, this is not the way we respond. We respond and re remember the, the, the evils they've done against us, the way they've hurt us, the way they've betrayed us, the way they've treated us, and, and we kind of judge them for that. But Psalm 103, 13, 14 says this, it reminds us that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him because he knows our frame and he remembers we're dust. Friends, I'm not making a comment on the state of Saul's soul. I'm making a comment of the radical generosity of God towards us as reflected by David in his words here about Saul. It says something about us, the things we pick out of this world. The things we tend to notice. Do you tend to notice the evil, the, what people have done, the shortcomings, their failures against you? Or, or do you notice the good that they have done? The way they have, in time, pointed you to Christ or helped you in a time of need? What is it that you pick out of this world? That says, that says more about you than the world that you are observing. I said earlier, if, um, if you're a conservative, you like the first half, the justice of David. And I would say, like, if you are more lean, a little left, maybe you're a liberal, you love the compassion of David here in 17 to 27. David only returning good for evil. This beautiful picture of forgiveness. And so we kind of have this odd situation, like if you're a conservative, you like the justice. If you're a liberal, you love the compassion. But the truth is, if you're a Christian, you love both the justice and the compassion that we see in David here. So the first thought is, I'm just reminded how radically we are different from the way God sees everything. The second thought, I'm reminded of how truly complex people actually are. Friends, the truth of it is, Saul was, did and was all these horrible things to David. But David knew he was also so much more. Saul did rally Israel in a time of need. He did protect the vulnerable. And in David's own words, he clothed his people in scarlet. And he took care of them. Friends, a biblical view of people must be just that. Biblical. We, we have to hold the, the, the biblical teaching of what, who all of us are. And that is this, this multifaceted reality. On the one hand... We are all saints because we are made in God's image. Whether or not you acknowledge that is a different scenario, but we are all saints in that regard because we're in his image. But we are also all sinners because of the fall in, our, in, in, in Adam and our embracing of sin. And so we are saints and we are sinners, but there's a third reality because we live in a fundamentally broken world and we experience that brokenness in every way, every day. We're also sufferers. To forget any one of those aspects of somebody, you will see and treat them as less. And of all people, we as Christians, if you are a believer, have to realize that's who we are. That's the complex nature of being human. Saints, sinners, and sufferers. 
And as we read 2 Samuel 1 and, and see David in, in almost these polarized extremes, it becomes clear that he will be a fierce king, both in his compassion, as the way he loves Saul in 1727, and in his justice, the way we see it demonstrated in verses 1 through 16. If only this young Amalekite knew the kind of king he was standing before, he would not try and deceive him. He would not lie or try and suck up to him because that kind of king abides no fools. And that kind of king desires truth and will always seek justice. If only Saul knew the kind of king he was standing against, he wouldn't have been jealous of him or envied him or be afraid of him because he is gracious and kind, and that kind of king always leads with grace, and grace always seeks compassion. And so when we look at this picture of David that almost seems irreconcilable from our perspective, that's exactly why this chapter was written, to inform us of the kind of king David would be. Remember, friends, remember this. The Bible was not written to you even though it was written for you. What I mean by that is, the Bible was written, this was written to a distinct people group, the, the Israelites grappling with a particular question, and the author is trying to answer their question and the driving question on their minds with these early Israelites, that what they're wrestling with is this. Is this David, is he a worthy king? Is he worth their allegiance? Can they follow him? He's not the king anyone would expect to follow Saul, so should he? In other words, 2 Samuel 1, among other passages in this book, was written to vindicate David's reign. David did nothing to steal the kingdom away from Saul, a man whom he loved because Saul was the Lord's anointed David would honor God above all else, no matter the circumstance or the personal cost to himself. Love for and trust in God would drive this king, not pragmatism, not circumstance, personal benefit, ease, or desire, which often marked Saul. Twice we remember, 1 Samuel 24, 26, Twice, David had the opportunity to take Saul out and grab hold of the kingdom. But David said he's going to trust God's plan, not the pragmatics of this situation. David, as we saw, executes swift justice rather than to reward bad actors, even when their actions benefit him. David would not trade justice for success, a lesson the Amalekite learned at great cost to himself. David would remember the good in people who often did evil, even those were his enemies. And he could nuance that between them. He could separate the person from the position. And he made that clear in 17 to 27. This chapter is to vindicate David and to establish the kind of king he's going to be. And it's not the king you would expect. If you know anything about feudal culture, if you're the upcoming king... You're not going to be gracious to the opponents of your household or your opponent's house. But yet he hears the death of his rival. You would expect David to rejoice, at the very least, give a sigh of relief. But no. He mourns and grieves over Saul. You would expect David to, at the very least, 
uh, reward or thank the, the man who took out his adversary, but he doesn't. He has him executed. This king sees things really clearly, and he acts very differently. I don't know about you, but, but part of as I was studying this passage, I asked myself the question, if I was one of the men in David's court, I, I don't know what I would do. How do you respond? And if, and if you're honest with yourself, you're probably feeling the same thing. How, how do you stand before a king who sees so clearly and he acts so decisively? I would be stressed out because either I'll be found out as a fraud like the Amalekite or, or, or maybe I will disobey him and come against him like Saul and hopefully he'll be as compassionate to me, but I don't know. And, and here's the thing. It's not because we don't value love and justice because we do. But when you have a king who loves fiercely and is ferociously just, and you know you're not good at either one of those, you could be doomed. And so if I was one of the men around David, I feel really nervous about how I am around him. Because I know myself, and, and I, I probably could do if I'm in justice gear, maybe, maybe I could do compassion gear, but I'm not good at either blending those two, and this king clearly does, and I don't know if I could stand before him. I have a hard time bringing together justice and compassion. I don't know about you, right? I could do one or the other, but, but I can't do both. This king seems to be able to. In the face of perfect justice, any falsehood is deadly. That's what we learn from the Amalekite. On the other hand, in the face of perfect compassion, any falsehood can be forgiven. And that's what we learn about Saul. How do you stand before a king who sees so clearly like that and acts so decisively? Because here's, here's the dilemma I struggle with, that we struggle with, is that we all want love and justice in this world, but if we're going to be honest, none of us loves truly and none of us is just consistently. I mean, well, we love those who love us, but little more if we're being honest about it. And we often confuse justice with what benefits us, don't we? This first chapter in 2 Samuel is making clear a theme that is woven all through the two books of Samuel. And that this David, this young ruler, foreshadows a king none of us could possibly expect. One who actually can marry perfect justice and perfect compassion. The real question is, not what is David doing, but how do I stand in front of a king like this? If we were to meet a king who is perfectly loving and perfectly just, either your lack of justice or your lack of love would be your undoing. And that's the truth. This is the dilemma that Saul, in part, is trying to address in this book. And friends, it doesn't matter if you're like the pagans or the people of God. It doesn't matter if you happen to be religious or irreligious. This is a question that everyone has to ask. How do I stand before this kind of a king? And this is woven all through the book. So look at the men of Beth Shemesh, the enemies of God, 1 Samuel 6.20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And then many chapters later, David himself says, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can I stand before such a king? How do we approach him? How, do we have any hope that he's ever even going to come to us? That dilemma, that theme 
was that, that question was posed as early as the second chapter of 1 Samuel. You realize that? If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can mediate for him? We all need someone to mediate for us because we will blow it. Even David, who is a type of the one to come, he blows it. And chapter 11 makes that real clear. We'll look at that soon. So, friends, when I read 2 Samuel 1, actually, in this day and age, the more I read the Old Testament, the more I see in this wonderful day and age we live in, where there's so much evidence of the manuscript evidence, the archaeological um, uh, evidences, and, 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 and so much cultural understanding and linguistic understanding, there's no doubt that these, these narratives took place. There's no doubt in the historicity of the Old Testament. And so, for me, the only legitimate, legitimate reason to not believe what I'm reading here in the Old Testament in like 2 Samuel chapter 1. The only legitimate reason to not believe this is because this is just too good to be true. That, that's the only, if you're being intellectually honest, that's the only reason that you have to say, I can't believe what I'm reading because this is just too good to be true. Because at the end of the day, all of us in this church and those not in this church, people, all of us in this society, we want a leader like we're seeing here. Whether you call him a, a king or a president or a boss or a supervisor or a husband or a wife, we long for someone that just loves justice fiercely and loves compassion just as ferociously. We want that. That clarity of truth, that courage to act, the compassion that only sees the best in us and the character to call all of us to our better selves. We want this kind of king but the dilemma we have is that we know no one is like this and if there were one like this none of us could stand in front of him and we feel the existential tension of that and we feel it. it's everywhere in society in all the arguments you see you see this tension justice compassion and we crash into those ditches and we can never marry the two and we long for someone that can do it but we know it's a, it's a pipe dream and we're haunted by that reality. If only, if only someone could mediate. If only could someone could bring these two together. That's the question, friends, that hangs over this Old Testament. No, this is more than the Old Testament. But, you know, the, the, the Old Testament. That's the question that hangs over. How can we stand before such a king? If only there was someone to mediate. Now, some of you are smiling because you're connecting the dots. You know what the answer to the Old Testament dilemma is. It's the cross. A symbol of both fierce justice and fierce love. God executing justice and showing compassion for his enemies as he loves them as brothers. Jesus, the greater son of David the king, a king that no one would expect. He takes the world, not by a display of his power, by relinquishing his power. He conquers us, not through violence, but by sacrificial love. And he never, ever reached out his hand to seize the crown and make himself king. Though many tried to force him to do that. Many tempted him, didn't they? His own disciples, the crowds, even the devil. But he trusted God's plan. He trusted God's plan that one day he would be king because he is God's anointed. And so, friend, 
as I wrap this up, any reader during David's time would conclude the same thing a reader in our time must conclude about Jesus Christ, the king to whom David pointed forward. This king is worthy. He can do what we only long for, but fear it can never happen. He can marry justice and compassion. Friends, that's why the gospel is such ridiculously good news. This is the king, fiercely just and fiercely compassionate, and he will mediate between us and God when we sin against him. The answer is he's worthy. He's worthy to be followed, worthy to be loved, and worthy to be king. Not just of an earthly kingdom like David's time, but earth, worthy to be king of your life and my life, your heart and my heart. Why would you ever challenge this kind of king? That's what the, the writers are trying to say. Why would you challenge them? Now we know David is just the shadow of what's to come, and we see his failures, but all throughout, they're trying to ask us the question, why would you want to follow any other king than the one this one points to? And that's what we're going to see in our study of 2 Samuel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word is so rich and behind the drama of the events of history and the transition of kingdoms and civil war, we see the gospel reality being played out as clear as day. And Father, we know that we are not to worship David at all because he is a man like any one of us in this room. He, he is human like us and he has clay feet. He needs someone to mediate just as we all do. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross. Not just to die on a cross, but to live the perfect life. That he might be the mediator between us and you. Father, would you continue to turn our hearts towards you. That we might be men and women that can have such fierce justice and compassion. And those two things are impossible in our own strength to combine. But they are possible in Christ because that is what Christ is. And so we thank you for this. We thank you for working upon us and never giving us up. Help us to be an evidence to the community that these two, it's not too good to be true. It is true in the gospel. Justice and compassion meet at, in the person of Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.